Dilshan is a medical doctor turned healthcare investor, currently based in Singapore. I'm beyond thrilled to have you kicking off this year's podcast lineup. You've been a very, very special friend of mine since we met less than two years ago, and it was truly evident that our friendship were meant to blossom since day one. Just as a start, we both share a profound interest in self-improvement and meditation. And that interest, I think, is grounded in a similar belief system and a belief for what I call perhaps the primacy of the subjective realities, a topic which we'll soon dive into. However, um, I know this will come up at some point in the conversation, so why don't we start off by getting it out of the way? How was your sleep score last night? Yeah, okay, look, um, appreciate those kind words, uh, Macrid. You know, I, I agree with you as well. I think uh, when we first met, uh, I always thought that our friendship was going to blossom as well. I kind of like that word. Um, it's kind of hard to find someone who is so, I guess, motivated to do things and at the same time able to reflect on the important questions of life, I guess, uh, which is... It's something that a lot of people don't think about, but I, I definitely do. So we definitely connected that way. But in answer to your question, how was my sleep last night? I could tell you how my sleep felt. Um, it was pretty restful, but like I didn't feel rested this morning. But according to my aura ring, uh, which not not a sponsor, it's, it's not, not a, a sponsor okay. of the podcast. Not just a, a maybe we should send in this video and okay, uh, I'll, I'll yeah. cut that part out. <laughs> yeah, we'll see see how it goes. Uh, apparently, I got seven hours and twenty four minutes of actual sleep. That's out of eight hours and nine minutes in bed. Uh, which is pretty efficient, and the sleep score was 89, which is optimal, and it's quite high for me. But um, usually it's pretty accurate. You know, when the sleep score is low, I don't feel that good. Today the sleep score is high, and I also feel like I wasn't rested. So, awesome. Let's see how this goes, because the yeah. you know sleep is one of the core pillars of your health, mentally and physically. Agreed. You know, I ask because I know you track a bunch of things. You're one of these maniacs that actually track things in 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 life, not just sleep, diet, fitness, but even urine and social activities, if I'm correct. So that why don't you correct. tell us the spectrum of things that you're tracking? Yep, yep, no, happy to go into it. I mean, um, I've been doing kind of a version of tracking for a little while, maybe like 10 years or so. And uh, over time, it's kind of whittled down into more efficient uh, metrics that I track, because obviously when you track, it doesn't necessarily mean you're making progress. And also when you track, it's taking mental capacity away from actually achieving goals, right? Because you're just retrospectively tracking what you're doing. So at the moment, what I'm tracking, um, sleep is one, then I'm trying to go chronologically on my Excel. So sleep, um, yeah, wake up time is there. Urine color, which is probably the best, well, easiest measure of hydration status, right? Um, not necessarily accurate, but it's, do, it's there. Do you, do you track uh, the same time during the day, like your your first? No, 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 no. So, see, I remember this quote, the enemy of what execution is complexity. I don't know if I just made that up on the spot, but I feel like that's a real quote. I don't know who it said it. It sounds legit. It sounds legit, and it's true, right? Like, okay. if you make it too complex, you're not yeah. going to do it, right? So, makes sense. at the moment, you know, this, this Excel, and it's only something that I fill out when I'm on the computer, right? Because the Excel is there. It's always running and stuff like that. So, it's got... um. Yeah, the urine color, it's got supplements, it's got my diet, it's got the length of time that I fasted. I try for a 16-8 fast. Uh, social interaction, as you say, and one thing that uh, is helping me as well is recording uh, meditation as one, but also whether I've watched something inspirational, whether it's an inspirational article or a video from someone that I look up to or something like the, that. The uh, content you feed to your brain. 
Yeah, pretty much in a sense. Um, and there's habits that I have around that as well. Like every time I'm gymming or commuting, it's always audiobooks and stuff like that. And um, what I used to do, and it's still part of the Excel, but I've stopped recording it, is actually recording the outcomes in a sense. And I had four domains of intelligence, like applied intelligence, dynamic intelligence, stuff like that. And I would record out of 10, I guess, how I'm feeling uh, in terms of that as well, and also mood as well as an overarching kind of a blanket thing. Um, I've stopped doing that though, because you know I find that if you judge yourself, then it's kind of also a little bit of friction and taking you away from the present moment in a sense. So I've stopped doing that. And it's more about optimizing those things and letting what happens happen. Right. So what would you say is the biggest uh, benefit out of this whole exercise that you've done for over the many years? Yeah. Look, I mean, um, benefits wise, it's the only benefit of tracking. Well, actually, there's two benefits for me personally. One is you could see what works for you. Everyone's a little bit different. Obviously, there's universal things that help everyone, like optimizing your sleep and nutrition and stuff like that. But when you go into details, like nutrition for me might look different for you. Maybe if I eat vegetables, I feel great. Maybe when you eat vegetables, you feel like crap, right? Things like that, right? Um, and when you track these things and you kind of record what happens and what you did with that day, you learn. You learn patterns. You learn what actually makes you tick in the right way. So that's one of the major benefits. And, and the second thing is it's kind of motivating as well because when I track these things, it's kind of like a scorecard. It's kind of like, how well did you do? And when you do these things, you kind of have a record of what you what you did. And for me, that's, that's somewhat motivating. It's like, you know, the whole Jerry Seinfeld, don't break the streak kind of thing, right? Like you do a, a streak track or whatever. It's a similar version of that in a sense. Right. I think a lot of people don't realize the the power of uh, little habits compounded over a long period of time and how our outcomes for the day is uh, determined by the little decisions you make from when you wake up to what do you eat to um, who do you sit for a coffee with so all these little things is only when you track them that their uh, micro impacts uh, gets illuminated you, you, you sh um, kind of shine a torch mm torchlight on them so um so that's great i think you reminded me of another friend of mine who also uh tracks a lot of things but the chief among them is uh fitness and gym because he competes uh professionally um for uh physique contest and uh i think the most memorable quote i heard from him is every day when he wakes up the number one goal he has in mind is to be brutally honest with himself and part of that is to um when when data stares at him and in the eyes you know he's he confronts it courageously like if you failed the last set you don't try to brush over it and you just tell yourself next day let's try it again so i think it's in the same spirit uh, that you track um these little activities scientifically right mm. um which is very admirable um but i'm i'm really curious since you're not a <laughs> you're not a, obviously a physique uh, professional <laughs> what are you uh, <laughs> you're just calling me out of my body <laughs> so where did this madness start you don't have to do diets you don't have to intermittent fast for competition where did all yeah. this madness start uh, where do you find the motivation? Perhaps walk us through your uh, journey in life from uh, from being an immigrant in um, Australia to uh, you know 
picking up a very highly regarded career in medicine and somehow uh, deviated away and uh, became a finance professional. Yeah. Yeah. So no, you had I, a very interesting path. Yeah. Look, um, yeah, I, I go into that as well. So yeah, you're right. I'm not a professional bodybuilder. I know some people mistake me for one, but um, you clearly know me, know me well. Um, so in terms of, I guess, how this all started, this whole obsession, uh, so to speak, I think when we were talking about what we were going to talk about in this podcast, I think on the weekend or whatever, I was just telling you about what's interesting to me. And what's interesting to me is, I guess, similar to what's interesting to you and probably similar to what's interesting to everyone, even at a subconscious level. And that's pretty much how do you optimize your experience of life, right? A lot of people are chasing circumstances for that, but I have an acute awareness that it's your state of being that you're chasing, right? Keyword experience. Your experience of life, right? So it's not really about your circumstances, it's about how you feel day to day in a sense, right? And the reason I think I became like this, and when I say like this, I mean obsessed with trying to optimize my experience of life, I guess relates back to my childhood. Um, so I was I was born in Sri Lanka, but I came to Australia when I was one year old. I think I was meant to be born in Australia, but uh, my mum was too pregnant or something. So um, I ended up coming here when I was one. So pretty much I grew up in Australia. Um, and my parents, you know, it's probably a similar story to a lot of first-generation migrants. Um, they grew up in modest means in Sri Lanka, and um, they managed with education and hard work to go to a better country, so to speak. Um, and, you know, when I grew up in Australia, I remember moving around a lot, probably by virtue of the fact that, you know, we were first-generation migrants, not from great financial means in a sense. And uh, I went to four different primary schools from grade kindergarten to, to grade six. And um, as part of that, you'd, I'd have to make new friends every time this is before social skills yes exactly it's before social media and stuff like that right so i think that helped uh but but the interesting thing about my experience of childhood and i don't know if it's unique to australia i think it's probably everywhere in this modern day and age and i'm very grateful for it was that the media that i would consume whether it be after school tv and the messages that they'd give you in school is pretty much that everyone's equal and everyone can be whoever they want to be Right. When you're a kid, you're fed that message. So when you say my experience as a first, well, as a migrant in Australia, I never felt like a migrant in Australia. I was one of the same as everyone else. And luckily, I didn't experience any racism or anything like that growing up, which is probably lucky, right? Because who knows what kind of what that might do to you as a kid. And maybe it's not the same experience for everyone else, but I got lucky in that sense. But I really bought into that when they told me that you could be whatever you want. I bought into it, you know, and they also told me other messages like, you know, don't worry about if you win or lose, just it's important you try. And I would do that. I remember my dad used to take me to soccer and, you know, I might not score a goal, but I'd be fine about it because it's all, all that matters is trying, right? And my dad would be like, oh, you know, why didn't you score the goal or whatever it is, right? Um, but I really bought into that message. And um, the reason why that's relevant to why I'm tracking stuff today uh, is because... Um, at some point I lost it in a sense, right? I lost that sense. And I guess to talk more about why that happened, um, if we go chronologically, I went to a specific high school, uh, then I went to university and I think everything was going good at that stage. I discovered self-development pretty early. I won't go into too much detail about it. So b before yeah. we dive into that, so you were saying you bought into it at first, implying that later on you had this uh, awakening of disbelief of kind of the the truth you were given and you questioned it yes right so at first you grew up in this um barring fraser's word word the pristine bubble of loveliness <laughs> right it's a good way <laughs> to not exactly, describe it but 
uh, where you were you thought yourself just as um, um, as fit to um, to be somebody as any other kid, regardless of background, mm-hmm. and then you had a very happy childhood, right? And then moving forward to high school, like how did you how did you discover uh, self improvement? Oh, look. yeah. So um, that's also kind of interesting. So in high school, I had a really good start socially. Um, I was, you know, pretty well connected with most of my grade, uh, and then. I had a girlfriend in year year six and year seven, which was like kind of rare as well. Broke up with her because I thought I could do better at the time. This is year seven self, right? I remember getting a lot of female attention. And part of the reason was my sister was like an older kid and she was dating someone who was a cool kid at my school and he was always talking to me and stuff. Did you look different from your peers? Did I look different? Oh, so you know what? Like, I think one lucky thing as well was the high school I went to was academically selective, right? So they used to have these exams, or they still do in Australia, where you can go to a public school, but the public school only takes people who pass this exam. So it's kind of a way for people who can't afford private schools to get into like a more academically credentialed school, right? So it's very meritocratic, which I really appreciate Australia for. Um, But in that school, it was... uh, really a bunch of Asians. I think, okay, out of 150 people, there's about 120 Asians. Sorry, by, by Asian, I mean like you're Asian. And then there was about 20 brown people. Okay. And then there was about five to 10 white people. So, you know, like everyone kind of looked like me and everyone was, you know, migrant family. So that probably helped a lot as well. Yeah. All right. So, so in that environment, you fit in perfectly. You were academically... Um, pretty not i wouldn't say i'm not sure gifted but you worked really hard to get there right because academically selective uh institution and then um and then what happened yeah okay so well the trajectory was kind of only up i mean i had a few years when i got pimples and acne and stuff where i regressed a bit but then after that kind of faded away it was about when i was 15 years old or so and you're kind of going through puberty and you're getting really interested in the opposite gender and uh things like that which is uh, obviously highly motivating uh what happened was i think i stumbled upon self-development quite early because what happened was i think my friend or myself i don't remember google like how to ask a girl out or something like that and then there was this guy called David D'Angelo, who's also not a sponsor of this podcast, obviously, who wrote this book, Double Your Dating, in a sense, right? And in his book, he, he was saying all these things about, oh, you know, you don't need to be good looking or you don't need to be whatever to attract females. It's about your energy and various things like that. And me as a 15-year-old kid reading this, pretty much him saying, you know, you could achieve whatever you want because it wasn't just about dating. All his lessons were about life in general right uh was just something i bought into just like i bought into all the propaganda of everyone's equal as a a kid and when i was 15 i bought into that consumed whatever content i could um and it was really motivating and i think part of the reason as well is at the time self-development wasn't a well-developed thing especially at that age group right this is pre a lot of the social media propagation and stuff uh these days goggins Pre-David Hawkins, definitely, who, who I respect a lot as well. Uh, pre all of that stuff, right? So a pretty early adopter and especially at that age group as well. So I kind of felt like I had a secret, a secret source. And, you know, when I speak about this, I can think that this was so egoic, right? Obviously, you're a kid and you're thinking about, oh, how am I better than my peers? But then when you're winning that game of ego, it feels great, right? And you feel like you was winning because you had this secret kind of technique. You know, I would socialize with people in ways that other people wouldn't feel confident for because I just knew that it was all in your head, so to speak, right? And uh, various things like that that I read in these books. 
So that was, yeah, I guess that was quite a transformative. So I think we're experience. similar in that. Uh, in my last year of high school, I was heavily involved in a lot of um, activities or projects. My academics were falling apart. My athletics wasn't uh, performing to the degree I wanted, and I had a relationship that was kind of falling apart. So that's how I stumbled upon uh, self-help. I was reading um, Brian Tracy and other guys like Seven Habits of Su- Successful teens first and then successful people so um the other classics like you know how to win friends influence people so i think all these things really made me realize and that's i think it's the value of self-help is it makes you realize your life is in your hands it's in your control is what you make out of it is it's you that has the power to change your circumstances not the other way around mate i i I agree. I'm just astounded that I'm, I'm like a little troll looking up how to date women and you're reading all these classic literature pieces about self-development and stuff at the similar age. We're definitely not the same. Uh, but like, uh, I think it work, what works for you doesn't necessarily work for me and vice versa, right? Yeah. So, yep. so back to you, the high school Dilshan, um, you were um, reading self-help books and, and I think you were still in that bubble where you were surrounded mm. by Asians, and then what happened? Yeah, okay. So then, um, I, I think it was still like flying high in this kind of system of rationalizations that made my life, regardless of circumstances, really enjoyable to live. Um, probably until I think what was it, third year of university, and that's what happened was I went on exchange to the University of Miami, and I think that's where this whole kind of unwinding started because in that, you know, university experience, I went on exchange deliberately to Miami because I thought, look, you know, I'm already in this medical degree. Let me have a good time, right? Go and have a social experience, kind of live overseas. And Miami's obviously known for being a place where there's a lot of parties and stuff like that. And um, in, in that time, I kind of let myself lean into hedonism a little bit more, right? And uh, would drink alcohol, various things like that. And I think because it was so far removed from how I used to operate when I was in Australia, kind of like still quite disciplined, eating clean, uh, trying to exercise, all that kind of stuff. Um, It kind of changed my mental state in a sense. And I'm not sure if it's because of the environment I was in or because of the mental state that I was in not being optimum, but I would notice certain things in Miami. Like at the start, it was fine. I was socially at my prime at the start, but over time, I would notice certain stereotypes that I never really bought into. Like for example, the jocks and the cheerleaders kind of leading the university. And then people who have like rich backgrounds getting, you know, more uh, success in various various endeavors. I mean, kids there, it's a private university, would have like Aston Martins and stuff, right? And this is stuff that never was anything that I valued. It's all superficial stuff. But there I started to notice it. Now, I wouldn't say that that's where I kind of unwound because the year after that, I went back to Australia. I was in uh, college. I went to kind of a... Uh, college in the University of Sydney called Paul's College, and it was a great college, uh, but I was one of only two brown people there. So it was completely different to my experience at high school. It was very much old money, Sydney side, uh, all male college, right? And I don't know if you Google Paul's College, it's been negatively portrayed in the media a few times because of various incidents uh, that's happened at the college. Uh, But it was a great place. But, you know, all these people came from connections, riches, they were like playing rugby, like all this stuff that was very different. And you know, as part of the hazing ritual and stuff like that of these colleges, you know, they'd give you names and stuff like that. And, you know, it would really, I felt like one of them in a sense, but also it was the first time that I kind of felt, hey, look, maybe I'm a little bit different, right? In that sense. 
And um, so that's when you start to reflect back on the uh, the truth you were shoved with, which is everyone's equal. Like there's no yes uh, differences among us. And yes, exactly. And you know. It still didn't affect me as much that year. I think the year after that, I took a year off from university. I was studying medicine at the time, realized it wasn't for me. So I did this business uh, for pretty much a year. Uh, and that year was great as well. That's when I met my current girlfriend and uh, it was really flying high. Uh, but these two experiences kind of built up to the subsequent year when I returned back to medical school and my peers were ahead of me. And I kind of, uh, for the next five years or so, made myself a hermit. I used to be hyper-social, have a lot of connections and stuff like that. But I was so in love with my girlfriend and still am, by the way, uh, if she's watching. Um, I was just wanting to spend all my time with her. And I've had some unforgettable memories. There's nothing that I'd regret about this. But as part of these formative years, I kind of disconnected from my friends. And I I know a lot of people who do that as well. You know, they have their like first proper love and uh, they kind of hibernate and become a recluse so to speak and just live with their partner and at that point was optimizing your the experience of life at the forefront of your um of your day-to-day of your mental state was that a priority or did it come later yeah no so it was still a priority in the sense that i still recorded stuff even back then right the the weird thing was you know when you're first in love properly right it's just crazy the emotions right and it's just you're having such a great time and you're feeling on top of the world and stuff like that, right? And uh, I didn't really need to focus on optimizing my habits to have a good time. In fact, I'd lean into like eating junk food and, uh, you know, going out and stuff like that or whatever it is because it was so enjoyable at the time. And um, as a result, you know, when I returned back to medicine and I was behind my peers and stuff like that, it was quite a bit of a struggle to, I guess, finish my degree and also come face to face with the reality, so to speak, that I used to be on top of my game and I used to be, I guess, academically very successful. I was probably going to be one of, by my peers voted to be the most successful person for a period of time. I'm not sure if that's true, but like at least one or two have told me that, right? And I used to feel like I could be anything I wanted, but coming back into medical school, having hibernated for a while, uh, losing connection with my friends, you know, not really feeling like I liked the career, it just took me into a spiral that I didn't even realize what was going on. And there was like years where I was regressing psychologically. I didn't like what I was doing. My habits weren't in check. I was not socially connected as I was before. My friends were progressing further than I was. And in medicine, it's really weird. You can't really get ahead once you're behind. It's just about the treadmill. You're just further behind the treadmill. Remember, I used to tutor people to get into medicine and they were more senior than me at at a certain point in time. Um, So, I I guess I had like a big ego, right, growing up. And I didn't know otherwise because ego, they say, is bad. But it's not bad if you're winning, right? If you're winning, having an ego feels great. It's only when you're losing that it feels crap. So it's kind of like a growth experience in a sense, having to emulsify that whole uh, egoic state. But that's kind of where this whole Disneyland reality started to unwind. And to tie that back into, I guess, the topic of today, optimizing your experience of life, I think the reason why I am the way I am today is because I know what life is like when your brain is in the right state, when you feel energetic, when you feel healthy, but also when you feel like anything's possible, when you feel like there's nothing holding you back, when you feel like what you can, what anyone has done, you can do as well. That state of being is such a great way to live. And I've experienced it before for various reasons. And losing that now, 
I know that it's not my circumstances. It's not my brain telling me, hey, it's because you're behind in medicine or, hey, it's because you're not as rich as some of your friends now or, hey, it's you're not jacked like, you know, your bodybuilding friend, whatever it is, right? It's none of that. It's about the way you run your mind. So that's kind of why I'm obsessed with optimizing this. And I think this is something that, uh, you know, a lot of people do understand, but a lot of people sadly don't. They chase circumstances, not realizing that right. it's not the circumstances that will make them happy. So, so it was that period of regression made you to realize made you to set your mission as um, optimizing your life experiences to bring you back to that peak mental state. Yes, because I think there's no downside, right? Not only if you're in this peak mental state, well, well, I guess to take a step back for a second, your own reality is all that exists. Exactly, yeah. I think we were talking about this on the weekend in the sense that what you think is real is not necessarily real. It's just your brain interpreting its sensory signals and giving you a picture of what reality is. You could be in the same circumstance as someone else and the other person might feel on top of the world, but you might feel like you're behind, right? Like you might have a great career or whatever. Someone from a different country might kill to be in your position and when they're in your position would love it, but you're not loving it because of comparison or whatever it is. So it's all about your own experience of reality in a sense, right? So you just got to kind of optimize that. It's not not about circumstances as we were saying. Um, and, and the weird thing is, there's, as, as I was saying, there's no downside to this, right? If your reality is a kind of fictional construct of your mind, why not make it empowering? Why not make it a system of rationalizations, as long as they're strong, that enables you to live in a peak state? And there's no downside to this if you're a good person. Obviously, there's some people out there who, you know, you can tell when they get drunk, they start like berating people and stuff, and that's their real self. But if your soul, if you were raised well, if you were whatever, and you want other people to be happy as well, there's no reason for you not to run your brain in a way that allows you to be in that state where you can give more, you can be productive and feel good about it at any time, uh, well, as much as you can, basically. What do you know now that you didn't know before? that kind of turned your life around and set you on the right path? Yeah, so, I mean, there's probably a lot to it, but thinking about it on the fly, I think one core revelation uh, that I had was realizing that your thoughts don't cause your mood, but your physiological state causes your mood, which causes your thoughts, right? So people think, look, hey, think positive because it'll make you feel happy or whatever it is. And I think there is some degree of that. But what's more important is if you feel happy, you will think positive thoughts. When you're in a happy state, you're going to remember all your happy memories, right? So say if you're like having uh, an issue with a friend or whatever it is, you're going to remember all the times that your friend was mean to you. You know, he stole your teddy bear, he did whatever, all, all this, whatever. But if you feel good about the guy, you're going to remember all the great times you've had with him. So I think one of my most important revelations was optimizing your physiology, optimizing your sleep, nutrition, whatever other habits optimize your physiology changes how you feel. That changes your thoughts. And then if your thoughts are productive, leads to action, leads to better results. There's literally no downside. And it ties back to that thing, right? People think that, hey, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to sacrifice all this stuff because when I get to this goal, it's going to make me happy. But they don't realize that you can run your brain to be happy in the process. And the happier you are, with happiness being a state where you're confident, you're free, you're able to take action versus, you know, when you're anxious and depressed, where you're kind of constricted, you're suspicious and stuff like that. The happier you are in the journey, the more likely you are to get these superficial results you're seeking. And if you're not like that, if you're not optimizing your mental state now, when you get these superficial results, like whether that's a pay rise or, you know, I really want to date this person or whatever it is, 
you're not necessarily going to be happy except for a temporary, you know, boost in your emotion when you get that result. The brain will habituate back to its baseline. Right. Um, the is only after you understand how to um, work with the brain you were born with that you can achieve more durable happiness because you know how it works. Like you understand how a Rubik's cube work and you know how to manipulate it in the way that you want. Um, so, yeah. so I, I think on that note, you pointed out a very important, um, I guess the principle is like kind of your body determines your mind. Right. Other than the other way around, it's about how was your sleep, it's about what food you ate, it's about um, whether you're exercising, um, that kind of feed into your mental state. So beyond that, what you could, what could you share with us about your um, other revelations? Revelations. This yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so if you were to describe your uh, kind of your thesis of life now versus before like what changed what, mm. what do you see now what do you define as success and happiness mm. okay definition of success that's an interesting one right um it kind of ties it's a complex question it's kind of like why are you existing right i think the definition of success for different people is different things some people think if they've offered the most value to other people they're successful or whatever it is i think purely from a very basic standpoint my definition of success is I guess, optimizing uh, the amount of positive emotions you have in your life, but not necessarily like in a hedonistic way, because obviously you'll chase superficial pleasures, but more so, you know, how do you, you've got a limited time on this earth, right? How do you experience being in a good state for as much as you can in this limited time on earth? So I think my definition of success, uh, in a sense, is how how much I was able to be in a good state, right? Um so that's not really necessarily like a revelation, so to speak. I think that's kind of an obvious thing that a lot of people are seeking. Uh, but to make that your actual goal rather than making a specific outcome that's right. superficial your goal is, I think, the difference. So I think if I may paraphrase, you're saying um, kind of your definition of success is wrapped in this idea of uh, optimizing the experience of life. It's about uh, achieving a mental state where you're content, you're happy with where you are, uh, and that you feel optimal on a, on a daily basis um, towards uh, different things like your life, your family, your career, the little tasks you set for yourself. Um, so I think the, the broad uh, thread of this conversation today is optimizing the experience of life. And uh, I think you made a pretty compelling uh, thesis on why we should optimize our life right and and then and then now i think we can delve into how to go about it i mm. mean we learned about your uh your habits of tracking i guess that's one of the pillars mm -hmm. uh, what are some other things that you watch out for yeah look i mean um i think one thing you mentioned just then i want to cl clarify as well sure. it's not about feeling good about your current circumstances yeah. and in fact i think at least for people like myself and probably most people maybe of our age or whatever the criteria is, you need to feel like you're progressing at some level to feel content with your present moment, right? So basically, if you're not growing to a better future, at least for people like myself, I'm not sure if this is the same for everyone, and maybe some people are fine just being who, who they are, right? Um, at least for me, working out how my brain works, I need to feel like I'm progressing, right? However, when 
when you're trying to grow, where, you know, you've got to have some metric you're growing. You know, are you trying to get bigger at the gym or more fit or are you trying to grow your bank balance or whatever it is? There's got to be some be- uh, metric. Are you trying to grow the connection that you have in your relationship? The issue with that is that not your brain needs to feel like it's growing. But if you are trying to target a specific goal, then the issue with that is that your brain is constantly comparing its current situation with this ideal goal, right? So, for example, I'm like, you know, trying to optimize, say, my relationship with my girlfriend, the amount of connection we have or whatever it is. Then in my head, I'm like, oh, it's not perfect where it is now, right? So there's kind of like a weird dichotomy there because if you're dissatisfied with your current state, then, you know, you're not really optimizing your experience of life. But at the same time, you need to be growing to feel good about your current state as well right so so how do you reach the balance of the two yeah so i mean i've got a bit of a framework that i i've kind of simplified over the years which i think helps me at least uh at the most amount of time possible live in this optimum state right now the first pillar of this is what we were talking about before sorting out your physiology right so obvious stuff like sleep nutrition that comes with calorie content fasting that kind of stuff um what else? Meditation is, is extremely important. I'm not sure how much you've already talked about in your podcast or whatnot, but you know, some people are naturally wired really well. But as you said before, it's about working out how your brain works, right? And a lot of people are walking through life in a complete daze without realizing how their subconscious thought patterns and habitual beliefs and identity about themselves are dictating things. And the only real antidote to that is being able to have a lens in your head of being able to pick up your thoughts. And meditation is kind of the only path that I found that's sustainable to get you to that state, right? We can pick up unproductive thoughts and stuff like that, right? So meditation is a key pillar of the habit as well. How did you get into meditation? Meditation, so yeah, I think it's probably reading in literature that it was good. So I started meditating in about 2011 or 2012 uh, on and off. I would never do guided meditations until a couple of years ago. And credit to you as well, you introduced me to the Waking Up app. You know, I believe that like, when you meditate, I was only doing focus meditation, focusing on my breath. And the idea was to try and get control and supreme control over my conscious awareness to be more productive or whatever it is. And I didn't realize there was a whole nother dimension to it. And you've introduced me to not not a podcast sponsor, but Waking Up by Sam Harris, right? Hopefully re- a podcast sponsor in the future. But <laughs> maybe, maybe. Not <laughs> shout at the out to Sam Harris. Yeah, shout out to Sam Harris. He's changed my life, changed the lives of many, many people. And um, those guided meditations are really great because it's not just about focus. It's about really understanding that everything uh, in your life is every sensation is separate to you and your conscious experience as a person or whatever it is. Right. So that's really accelerated my progress, I guess. Yeah. And I think just as a footnote, I think uh, meditation is uh, pick whatever form that works for you, right? Guided, mm-hmm. unguided. Um, there are lots of varieties out there, but the key is to do it. Right? Yes. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it feels. You just have to do it. Yeah. And after a while, just like any other skill or task you master it and you find joy in it and you and it's something that you can feel the progress as it gets easier and easier and that's when you know you're slowly slowly taking control back of your mind right it's it's crazy i mean that that point is really important as well when i remember when i started meditating and this is probably you know i talk to people like do you meditate and stuff like that and a lot of them are like oh yeah i tried it once i just found it boring or whatever it is right and it's really interesting because i remember when i started as well i would meditate and i would also think hey this is boring i would i'd be like nothing's happening what's going on but then if you stick at it you eventually realize hey wait a second 
my judgment of this meditation session is my thoughts. And then slowly you realize, hey, if I'm thinking the meditation is boring, that's me thinking. <clears throat> and that's the whole point of it. You're meant to actually train this part of your brain, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex or whatever the hell it is, that can see that part of your brain. So I guess a message for anyone mm -hmm. listening here, if you're meditating, if you tried it out and it was boring or whatever it is, stick with it because that's the whole point. If you're in a state where you're judging the whole process of meditation, then that's exactly the signal for you to keep going because that means you're identified with your mind. You don't realize your thoughts and those thoughts aren't actually you and you could separate from them. And it just takes time. So I thought I'd just flag that as well. Right. Uh, I think although you're here to share about your framework on optimizing uh, experience of life, I don't mind sticking a bit longer on this meditation because it's, it's such an important uh, habit and a, and a part of uh, everyone's optimization toolkit i think whatever career you're engaged in whatever goal you set yourself towards um, meditation teaches you how to be more present in life and being present i think it's a um, precondition for success in any activity hmm. um, i think it was from uh, andrew huberman that he said after I think 20 late 20s your brain neuroplasticity the ability to to change the neural wiring um, declines unless you're in a state of intense focus mm. i think med meditation allows you to access that state much easier yeah right yeah i mean i resonate with that a lot you know as part of my regression journey when i was about 25 or so i got very ex existential um in a sense out of quarter life crisis so to speak right and um <clears throat> during that time i would uh, read about time speeding up as you get older and stuff like that and i think part of that well, the theories are you know that every day that goes past is a smaller percentage of your entire life so when you reflect back on your yesterday it's only a small percentage whereas your kid one day is a huge amount of time that's part of it but i also believe exactly what you said when you get older your brain's less plastic the synapses that were all there and haven't been used that much would have, have been pruned just to make you more efficient right and as a result you can kind of switch your brain off just like when you drive to work and you know you're on the phone or you're doing whatever and you don't you just automatically driving people don't realize that that's the state that they're in most of their life they think they're interacting with people and not realizing that you know if your coworker is annoying you or something like that that's a habitual kind of path and you're not really consciously aware of what's going on and you might you know <clears throat> react to them in a bad way or in the same way like positive things as well a lot of them are just habitual brain habits and um yeah i think if you're not awake that's probably why time is going so quickly as well <clears throat> and also if you're not awake you're not going to be able to catch these unproductive habits that you have and if you can't catch them you can't change them right so and as a, as a premise, this is if your brain is not optimally wide. I'm sure there's like 5% of people out there who were born blessed and, you know, they just came into this world and they're so productive and they're winning and whatever. These guys don't need to meditate, all right? This is for people who, you know, want to improve their lives, want to improve their experience of reality, which at the end of the day is all that there is anyway. Exactly. That, that's yeah. what helps. Uh, what's your routine now? How does it fit into your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, so with, with meditation... The interesting thing about meditation is once you get into a flow of meditation, and I'm not sure if you've had the same experience, it's not something you force yourself to do. It's something you feel like doing. When you get into that state of presence, life becomes so much better. You don't have this like weird, uh, you know, 
redundant thoughts or whatever it is taking you out of the present moment if you have a difficult task which everyone everyone has in their life right you need effort to sustain even a normal way of living just because of entropy right you need to clean the house it's not going to clean itself whatever it is you always have these moments that you prefer not to do right meditation makes all those moments effortless in a sense right so when you've meditated consistently at least for me it's not oh, I should meditate now because it's going to do that. It's more like, hey, I don't feel present. I feel like meditating. So when I'm in this state of meditation, usually on average four times a day, I feel like doing it, taking 10 minutes out of my day. But, you know, when, once you're out of the habit and you're starting, it's not like that. It's kind of like, oh, it's a waste of time. I don't have time for this, whatever it is. But, like, once you're in the flow, it's not really effortful to keep it up because you're addicted to the state of presence. Right. I definitely um, empathize with that addiction aspect of meditation is once you get into it you keep wanting to go back to enjoy that bliss right um and just for people who are discouraged i think how long did it take you to before you sort of mastered that uh, look i'm entry? definitely definitely not a master at, at any in any means um well, I'm trying to reflect back, right? So in 2012, I would meditate. But, you know, I think one thing I've learned as well is that it's, at least for me, it's easier to meditate when you're feeling uncomfortable, right? Yeah. So if I have this hard exam coming up or whatever it is, it's easy to meditate. Because when you meditate and you get into presence and you disconnect from your thought content, it's kind of an antidote to the uncomfortable thoughts that you've been having. Like say you've been anxious for an exam or whatever it is, or you can't be bothered to do this work that you have to do. When you meditate, you get out of this, you get a reward immediately, because you're not in that anxious state. Whereas if you're in a happy mood, like if I'm on holidays, I have all these grand plans of meditating, but I never get motivated to meditate. And part of the reason is when I do sit down to meditate, my brain is just feeling great anyway. And when you meditate, like why not identify with your thoughts and feel great, right? Like, or whatever it is, it's, it's just harder to kind of separate from that. I remember, I think, um, my parents are Buddhist, right? And I know a little bit about it and I'm not like a spiritual person at all. But I remember they were telling me about equanimity and as a, as a desired goal. Uh, and that's kind of when you don't feel kind of too bad or you don't feel too good or whatever it is. But, you know, for me, it's it's a lot harder. I, I can use meditate, meditation as an antidote to my bad feelings, but, you know, when I'm feeling good, it's very hard to kind of use meditation in a sense because you kind of want to, don't want to disconnect from that good feeling. So in terms of how long it took to get into it, I don't have a specific answer. I've gone through cycles. Uh, I remember in 2016 when I was... Um, uh, I was I basically did this rotation in uh, Sweden, right, for about three months, obstetrics. obstetrics. And during that uh, rotation, I decided just to eliminate all of these all of these things, which is actually part of my my um, the toolkits, the framework, my toolkit, right. So like I went on this so to speak dopamine fast before it was even a thing. This is back in like 2015. Pulse. That's let's transition right into it then. Yep. So just to orient everyone who might not be following this conversation so far. Uh, Dilshan, you're introducing us to your framework yes. at optimizing the experience of life. Yeah. Well, you made a very compelling case of why, and now you're delving into the how. Yes. Number yes. one was your uh, treat your body right because uh, that's a foundation of your your mood, your thoughts, everything else. Number two, we just talked about, which was meditation. Yep. And now is another important pillar which you have spoken to me before and and it has been tremendously helpful yep yep so f f not to uh not to interject but just for those who are not aware what is dopamine 
what is dopamine fast? Okay, look, I mean, dopamine, I think, is a misnomer, right? So, obviously, I'm not a neuroscientist or anything like that, but I have had basic neuroscience education as part of my medical degree. Um, and dopamine, I think, is a, a hormone, sorry, a neurotransmitter that's released uh, to motivate you in a sense, right? So, like, when you feel like you're hungry for something or whatever it is and you're motivated to do it, that's that's kind of dopamine. But it's not the pleasure hormone in a sense, right? Like, I think um, I'm not a neuroscientist by any means, but I, I feel like once you reward yourself with whatever the dopamine circuit is trying to get you to do, then you get endogenous opioids or whatever it is that that concoction probably makes you feel good, right? But um, that's kind of like, uh, from my understanding, the neurotransmitter of motivation in a sense, right? So when I say dopamine fast, I'm not sure if that's technically accurate, but what I kind of mean is reducing the level of stimulation in your life, right? So if you think back to cavemen times, where, where our brain was probably mostly designed in a sense, we didn't have all these cheap sources of dopamine. And, you know, the stuff that I'm saying now is very mainstream, right? But I'll tell you what happened to me back in 2016 or 2015 when I went onto this dopamine fast. So yeah. for three months, I was in Sweden. Um, I was kind of like in my final year of medical school or whatever it was, and I was really far behind. And I needed to go into Zen mode in a sense, right? So what I did was I would just sleep, sleep well i would live in a basic room i i put i didn't consume any media uh so to speak like i didn't watch any tv nothing like that i ate plain food no salt nothing like that or uh whatever i would meditate regularly um and i would just basically do nothing that would spike my level of excitement or stimulation the only things that i would do is study go to the hospital and like do that do that job and then socialize, right? And socialize without substances and stuff like that. No alcohol and things, right? So um, it sounds very much like the opposite of hedonism because you're rejecting pleasure for the sake of rejecting it. Yeah, look, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point as well. Um, the 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 thing that I found from it and how it relates to hedonism as well is that once I did that, and it wasn't even for that long of a time, like I did it for a few months, right? But it didn't take that long to get into it. I would take cold showers as well. That was another thing, like in zero degree Sweden. But what what would happen is maybe after day four, day five of me starting this, is you would go into a Zen mode. And I don't know if you've seen this movie Limitless, right? It's like this guy takes this pill called NZT and he does all these weird and crazy things. It's like the premise is you use 10% of your brain and this pill unlocks the other 90%, whatever it is, right? And it would kind of feel like that because I think what's happening at a neurobiological level, and obviously I'm not a neuroscientist, but just working through the basic framework that I have from medical school, when you don't feed your brain with the neurotransmitters that it was getting before, the receptors for the neurotransmitters probably upregulate so that less of the neurotransmitter can stimulate the neuron in the same way, right? So what do I mean by that? So say, for example, you were your current life at the moment is drinking a lot of alcohol, watching TV, whatever, like doing all these cheap things to stimulate your pleasure centers or whatever it is. If you kind of cut that out from your life, your brain always trends towards homeostasis, a stable stable baseline. And it'll feel uncomfortable at the start, but pretty soon your brain will rehabituate to this new baseline. And what I would find is that studying used to be such a chore, but it would be so weird because I would read this stuff, this stuff that inherently isn't interesting to me, and it would be the only stimulation I had. So it would become interesting. And a simple conversation between me and a friend would go from being something that was just like a neither here or there experience to deep source of pleasure. And I feel like our brain was designed to be like that in a sense, right? Because imagine if you keep stimulating yourself, you're always going to be dissatisfied with the basic day-to-day -day, uh, 
piece of life. And and the interesting about this is that it's a skill that not many people ha- uh, are practicing, and it can also help you get better results. Because a lot of the stuff to get ahead is stuff that you have to do that other people don't feel like doing, and you can make yourself feel like doing it if you kind of get rid of the stimulation. And I'm not saying like live as a monk, yeah. right? I believe in having a good time. But what I found works for me is having phases of your life in a sense, right? So you can have micro phases. You can spend the weekdays being pretty strict about reducing stimulation, sleep well, whatever it is, and then maybe have a great Saturday or whatever it is. Now, for me, I spend often weeks in a row of being in the state, and then I might spend a week or two actually not being in the state or whatever it is. Um, but it's, it's a great way to live. Yeah, so in terms of how to go about it, what I do, and it's obviously different for everyone, and it's it's different for me as well in the sense that, like, luckily, uh, you know, I don't have kids, I don't have anything like that, so it's easy for me to implement these habits, right? So uh, for me, as you say, like, at the moment, eating plain food, it's pretty much like unflavored chicken, unflavored rice, uh, some, you know, salad um, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so... I, I try to limit media. I do watch, I think, like one Netflix show a night with my girlfriend just because we're doing long distance, right? So it's kind of a way we connect as well. Uh, optimize sleep, no substances, right? No alcohol, that kind of stuff. Um, and what are the other practical things? Obviously, preserving your energy. You don't you, you want to be celibate, so to speak, a little bit uh, if you're a male um, as much as you can because that's like a really big source of dopamine. Um, and yeah, like no, social media, you got to cut that cut that like luckily for whatever reason i never got into instagram or anything like that and i I just don't see the value of it i think if i got into it i would see the value in it but i just haven't and i know that it's probably not the best idea so yeah i just haven't did the right thing yeah Yeah. like whatever it is i got got lucky in a sense um that i didn't get on board maybe i was in hibernation mode at that time yeah no addiction to break the kids nowadays are bombarded by uh different social media stimulus and it's scary. It's scary to think about how their brains will turn out. Yeah, when they're adults, right? It's insane. You know, span is just one of them. But go on. Yeah, like as in, I'm worried for the kids in a sense, right? Because they get so much stimulation these days, or they've got so much access. Whether it's hyper real gaming or like social media, as we said, that's constantly comparing you to these fake people who are airbrushed or whatever it is. Imagine if you're like a teenage girl in this day and age. Um, and it's, yeah, I'm not sure how to manage it. Uh, I obviously don't have any kids. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think um, <clears throat> perhaps not everyone should go to the same extent as you. Yes. Uh, to that extreme. Um, but the key is to be aware of the threshold of your uh, pleasure or dopamine. If you've had a period of uh, indulgence, now is a time to step back and have some um, austerity on your life. Yeah. So it's always the balance that makes the ple- pleasure pleasant and makes um, you to avoid the, the painful things on the other hand too. So it's always in between. That's true. Well, one thing I would say though to add to that, right, is that I know in the past if I felt like dissatisfied or whatever it is, if I do this for like five days, you kind of get this hunger and drive that you had as a kid, in a sense. It gives you all this energy. So, you know, some people might be feeling in a bad mood or whatnot, and I've definitely had my fair share of bad moods and, like, bad states of my life. And your brain will always give you reasons as to why your life's bad. This person's treating me like that or that person's doing, you know, doing whatever or, you know, my life's not good because of this circumstance. Um, But 
as we said, the first pillar is physiology and your physiology creates your thoughts. And when you do dopamine fasting and you get rid of all this stimulation and stuff like that, and you know, you're intermittent fasting or whatever it is, you get this hunger and this drive, which excites you in a sense. And you get this excitement for life, which I found no way to replicate in a sustainable way other than this approach. So, you know, people don't have to go through this, but I feel like if you are dissatisfied with your life and you, you know, have all these reasons your brain is giving you, which, you know, unless you've got a health issue or, you know, you lost a loved one or your loved one's injured or something like that, most of that's just in your own head. You know, in this modern day and age, luckily, you know, the worst you can fall is working at Maccas or whatever it is. And there's people at Maccas who are absolutely peaking, right? They're running teams. They love their life. They're whatever. It's just about your experience of reality. If you're, if you're feeling dissatisfied, try this out. Try cutting all the stimulation out. Try not spiking your dopamine for even five days. And then I'm confident that you're going to feel excited. You're going to feel clear-headed. You're going to feel in a different state of being and your thought content will be different. It won't be like, oh, Karen over there is annoying me at work and my life's shit because of it. It's more like, oh, Karen, you know, why is she like that? Maybe she had whatever. Let me try and be friends with her. What, like your thought content and actions will change. You'll have a different perspective. Yeah, it's, it's about cl clearing the um, uh, the windshield of your car and kind of reset your attitude and approach to life. Yes, yes. Yeah. And don't buy into what your brain's saying. Your brain will feed you all this nonsense if your biochemical state is not optimized. If I may take a step back and um, um, summarize the framework you laid out so far, it consists of number one, physiology, treat your body right, diet, intermittent fasting. Um, number two, meditation, which we spend quite a lot of time on. Number three, dopamine fasting. What else is there? Yeah, look, I mean, the framework I've simplified over the years, and I think there's only a couple of other things uh, to add on, and I've made a list here as well, which I'll just consult quickly. So um, we talked about socialization as well, right? Humans are naturally social creatures. You need to make an effort to connect with other people because it gives you confidence. It, it lowers your anxiety. If you're by yourself and your only friends are digital friends, it's very different to being really connected with another human that you think actually cares about you as well. It just makes life and the experience of it and all these anxieties that can come up stress-free. So that's an important part of it as well. And I think there's only two other parts of my framework, right? One is feeding your brain with positive content. Now, I mentioned that some people might be naturally blessed and they were born into this world with the, a brain that is wired completely well, but usually your brain will return back to its natural state, right? except over time, you know, you might be able to rewire it in a sense, right? So for me, you know, your natural state might be unproductive thoughts or whatever it is. And it's a hard press to be able to constantly remind yourself to like be better. So what I've done is I've had a, I've formulated a habit by which, you know, when I can, which is while I'm gymming or while I'm commuting, listening to positive content, well, not necessarily positive content, but productive content. A shameful pluck for the podcast. <laughs> That's right. I mean, your podcast has got to be part of that, right? So productive content that will help you grow, help remind you of, you know, this whole journey of optimizing your experience of life, right? Follow, like, subscribe if you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> 100%, 100%. So that, that's an important thing. And I think if you can incorporate that, you can't rely on your brain being able to constantly remember this mission, right? You've got to keep feeding it new content and you always learn new things, little things doing so as well. And then I think the final thing as well alludes back to what we were saying before. I think at least for me and for a lot of humans, you need to be able to feel like you're growing to feel like you're actually okay with your present reality. You can't really feel like you're okay with your present reality if you don't feel like you're growing towards a better future, right? Uh, so for that, 
there is one pillar that I think is really interesting, and it came from this book, The Practicing Mind, called Thomas Stirner, and that's a book. Sorry, Practicing Mind by by Thomas Stirner. It's like, it's like this pianist, right, who like wrote this book, and I stumbled upon it in when I was in the Sweden Sweden thing and meditating a lot, and he's basically found this trick which I relate to a lot. That can make any sort of uncomfortable situation that you have, whether that be doing a project or cleaning the house or whatever it is, a stress-free experience. And I think that skill, if you can learn that skill, just makes your life on easy mode, improves your results, and really gets to where you gets you to where you want to go faster. And the whole framework of that is basically it ties in with meditation. So when you meditate. One of the key things that you are actually training your brain to do is to be completely present. When you're present, you're awake. It's just like when you're snowboarding or doing something like that. You're in a flow state. You're not thinking about random insecurities, anxieties, or whatever it is. You're just focused exactly on what you're doing. So, his framework, and I'd really highly recommend you read the book, gives you specific steps on how, when you're doing a task that is uncomfortable, your only goal should not be. What the outcome of that task is, right? So, for example, if I'm trying to do an assignment and I've got like two thousand words to do in this assignment, you shouldn't be constantly. You know that you need to write two thousand words, but you shouldn't, in every single moment you're doing that assignment, be thinking about your goal of two thousand words because you're constantly going to be judging yourself. And when you judge yourself and you look at your freaking three words that are on your page, you're going to feel bad about it and you're going to feel anxious because it's due in two hours or whatever it is, right? What he says is let go of attachment to the outcome. Your only goal is to be present in the process of what you're doing. So what that means is, instead of thinking about, you know what you're doing, right? You've you've used your goal as the rudder to like kind of work out what your plan should be. Your plan is I've got to write two thousand words for this essay. But instead of constantly thinking about that goal, all you're focusing on is writing each word of your essay. And your only goal is to catch yourself when you get distracted, when you start thinking, when you get anxious, because that's not you being present. And when you actually make your goal not the outcome, but your goal is to stay present, it's a beautiful state of mind, because you're constantly achieving your goal in every moment that you're present. And the weird thing is, right? And this is the thing that really sold me on this, and I've found it to be true myself, is when you're focusing on doing this, you often have to slow down. Right, you're constantly trying to go fast, but you often have to slow down. When you're focusing on words, you have to go at a certain pace to stay focused and just present in doing that. But the weird thing is, it'll feel like it's taking a longer period of time because you're focused on it. But 99 times out of 100, you've done it in a way shorter period of time than you would have done it otherwise. Because when you are constantly distracted by thoughts, all those times that your brain is, you know. Anxious and thinking about what your teacher's going to think about the assignment and stuff like that. Time is passing, and you're not realizing that it's passing. Whereas if you spend all of your mental energy doing the task at hand, it might feel like you've spent longer on the task, but oftentimes you'll finish it in half the time. So that is kind of a pillar of my my life as well. Using meditation to parlay into the into just making the goal being present in what you're doing rather than the outcome itself. So if you were to、um... Putting a statement, how would you describe the pillar? I would say, well, what he would say in the book is process, not product. Oh yeah. Focus on the process, not the result. Okay. Your only goal is to stay present in what you're doing, and if you're if you're listening to this and you haven't meditated and you don't know what I mean by being completely present, 
just think back to like when you've been in a flow state, whether that's been in a party that you felt on top of the world and you're you're in a state of complete presence and you're just reacting to the environment. Think about when you were snowboarding and you're just you forget all your problems and you're just going down the hill and focusing on the micro structures of what you're doing, right? That's what I mean. You can achieve that via meditation, training your brain to do that for any uncomfortable task. Time slows down when you're present. It does. That was my experience too. When I yes. meditated to prepare for um, the, the U.S. law school exam, which I took um, in college, I meditated every day. And when I sat for the exam, I felt like, I felt like a, a surgeon operating uh, in the hospital and I could control every little bits and pieces of uh, what I'm doing in the um, micro scale. So it, it really felt that way, like I was operating in my mind, um, dissecting the essay as if I'm operating on a patient. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I can relate to that as well. It's definitely the state that you can get to. And there's no downside. There's no downside. It makes all the yeah. uncomfortable tasks easier. You get better at doing them. You're not wasting 40% of your brain circuitry judging your progress because all of that stuff does not help you get to your goal. It's yeah. just you feeling bad and berating yourself for no reason. Yeah. If you eliminate that focus on the goal, you get to where you want to go faster and easier. Is there any other pillars you would like to... Uh, share today you know i think like i think my point my overarching point is you know i'm not not trying to say that this will work for everyone but i do believe that a lot of people might you know benefit from this this is what i've worked out with trial and error helps you experience i guess helps your experience of life be be good and it's not about circumstances right obviously absent you having a health issue or your family member being having a health issue whatever it is in the modern day and age as we said before we have no problems right? All your problems are self-generated. It's all about, you know, comparison with other people or whatever that is. And all of that is just mental noise. Mm. And if you optimize your state, if you're fasting, if you're exercising well, if you slept well and you're in a great mood and your neurotransmitters are good, your thought content is going to be good. You're going to take better actions. If you fast from dopamine and you're not overstimulating yourself, you're going to find excitement in natural things like social interaction and various things. It's going to change your actions. If you're present and meditate, you're able to rewire your brain in a sense, right? You're going to capture these weird things thoughts and be able to change your habits and if you feed yourself constant you know positive uh information every single day then you're going to constantly remind yourself of this journey and this whole goal achievement thing that we talked about it's a bit of an esoteric kind of concept i'm not sure how much people would be able to understand it without experiencing it for themselves but that's kind of the icing on the cake that's how you really unlock your life and when i say this as well it's a constant journey you're fighting against biology right your brain if you let go of these habits is going to regress back into its former slug-like self, right? And it happens to me, it happens to everyone. And you can't expect to be like in this superhuman state all the time. But just knowing that this is kind of an antidote to your problems is, is just gives you a framework to really improve yourself. And when you're in that state, you know, it's, it's great. So yeah, I'm gonna make a, uh, I'm gonna break the third wall and then make a footnote on that to put in some uh, motivational music in the background <laughs> when I edit this part of what you just said. Mate, you know, I love Gladiator. I remember that. I don't know if that music's going to be appropriate. Maybe you can find something better. But, uh, but yeah. Uh, so, well, as we wrap it up, uh, tell us um, where can people buy your course and uh, how much do you charge for life coaching? Mate, you know, I'll tell you what's happening right now. I am in, a, in the process of chronologuing my journey, right? Not because I think 
that my current self is any anything that anyone would want to aspire towards. Maybe maybe it is for some people. But what I can say is that I think I've kind of cracked a, a little bit of the code, at least to kind of optimize my life, right? And if in two to three years I'm in a place where... Unfortunately, in this day and age, most people listen to people who are superficially successful because they're like, oh, hey, this guy's really rich or this guy's got a huge amount of friends. Let me try and be like this guy, even though the random guy who's like no one is might be the person you need to learn from, right? If I get to a stage where people will actually be motivated to listen to what, I, what I'm doing, I've chrono- cataloged a lot of stuff and I might release all of that and do what you're saying and like try and teach people. But, you know, who knows? There's nothing at the moment. Yeah, just to give it's some context to that, right? So... Uh, that was a completely a joke I made about you selling the course, but hey, I, <laughs> okay, Dilshan is making <laughs> videos. Um, is it? It's not published, right? No, nothing's okay. published. But <laughs> as a way to journal his um, progress through this life optimization experience. So, um, so watch out for that. And if you don't, if you don't see these videos, then you know I failed miserably. So. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so keep coming yeah. back to the podcast. I'll, I'll for sure bring him on and uh, keep him accountable because um, I know him personally. He's definitely not selling some snake oil. It's it's real. Every time I try to ask you out, there's always something going on in your work count, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's only because you your social hours are crazy, man. You're like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going out. I'm probably going to reach there at 1 a.m. Dude, I sleep at 9 p.m., right? And you send me that message at 9.30, so I see the next day. Yeah. So it's not because I'm antisocial because, you know, as we yeah. said, one of the pillars is socializing. Just want to flag that inconsistency. It's, it's, it's beautiful how uh, how your routine is different than my. Yeah. But somehow, like, um, we're, we're sitting here talking to each other. <laughs> we make it work, man. We make it work. As friends, yeah. So, I, I mean, I couldn't thank you enough to come on the show. I mean, you've been uh, a constant inspiration of my since day one, um, echoing back to the intro, and I hope this um special friendship continues oh it definitely will yeah. and really appreciate you having me here i really uh, like what you're doing with this podcast and spreading positive messages so keep it up man